Hey guys, Montel here, and welcome to this edition of Free Thinking. And I am so psyched and excited to have the guest on that we have today. Today's guest is an emergency room or emergency physician and public health professor at George Washington University. She is also a professor, a re- I'm sorry, she's also a non-resident senior fellow at the Brookings Institution, a contributing columnist for the Washington Post, as well as CNN medical analyst. She previously uh, served as Baltimore's health commissioner, where she's led the nation's oldest continuously operating public health department. A member of the Council on Foreign Relations, Dr. Wen has received recognition as one of the governing's public officials of the year, Modern Healthcare's top 50 physician executives, World Economic Forum's young global leaders, and Time Magazine's 100 most influential people. She is the author of the patient advocacy book entitled When Doctors Don't Listen, How to Avoid Misdiagnosis and Unnecessary Tests, and just released her brand new book in July 2021 entitled Lifelines, A Doctor's Journey in the Fight for Public Health. Thank you so much for being here, Dr. Leanna Wen. Thank you so much for being here. I will tell you, you are also my idol, and I, I listen to every word you say. I hang on them sometimes. So thank you for being here today. Well, I'm, I'm really glad to join you today and have this robust conversation, but also have appreciated your work over the years. So thank, thank you. you. Thank you. And, you know, as fellow Baltimoreans, we got to hang together and hang tough. And I'm glad that, you know, in this case, a Baltimorean is leading the way in the not only national discussion, but the international discussion when it comes to COVID. I have so much I want to talk to you about. Um Let's back up. I want to talk a little bit first. I want to make sure people understand who you are. You just blow me out the door. I, I, <laughs> I, uh, <laughs> first, not only from being from Baltimore, but you were an immigrant from China, correct? Mm-hmm. And um, your parents brought you here. What age were you when you arrived in the United States? Yeah, so I actually, this is how I start Lifelines, in fact, by by telling my immigration story. So my my parents and I came to to the U.S. just before I turned eight. And I, we had, in some ways, a typical immigrant experience in that it's atypical, right? It's, it's, uh, it's different for each person, but there are common threads. And one of those common threads is that my parents, despite working multiple jobs, we still, as a family, had difficulties making ends meet. My father was, um, was washing dishes in a restaurant and delivering newspapers. My mother was getting her, her teaching certification at night, um, but uh, was also working in a video store and cleaning hotel rooms. And we had a lot of difficulties in those early years. We depended on Medicaid, on SNAP, on food stamps. Um, there were times when we experienced homelessness. And I think growing up, I saw so many examples, including in Lifelines, I talk about a little boy I met who died in front of me because he didn't have asthma treatment. Um, what happened was that his grandmother was too afraid to call for help because they were undocumented. And she was afraid of the consequences if she called for health uh, reasons, she thought, could the immigration officials come? But um, I, I grew up early on understanding that we live in a society that is deeply unequal, that mm-hmm. we do not treat healthcare and the fundamental right to health as the human right that it is. But I mean, I, I, I read that, you know, between, I guess you got here at age eight, but by age 13, you started college? And, right. and, you, and, 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 and I, clearly that's, that's a testament to you focusing on the opportunity for education 
and studying and learning and pay attention, even through those trials and tribulations that your family had to go through. Talk to me a little bit about that. An eight-year-old child who understands how important it is to pay attention in school and to work as hard as you did. You know, it's, it's, I mean, I appreciate you asking me about this. And actually, this was a part of Lifelines that I found difficult to write because I actually had not really shared the story of my upbringing. I mean, people knew that I went to college early, but not really the reason as to why. Um, actually, what had occurred was that my parents were going through very, diff very difficult economic times. And going to college, there was a work-study program where I was able to work in a lab and, and contribute to my family and assist in, in this way. Um, when I first started college, I mean, I, I was one of those annoying people who always knew that I wanted to be a doctor. I knew that that's what I wanted to do, but I actually didn't think that anyone would believe me if I told them, because who was I? I mean, we were immigrants. We had no connections in, in the U.S. The only doctor that I ever met was my pediatrician, because I had asthma and went to my pediatrician a lot. But that was it. I, I thought if I said to people, I want to be a doctor, that they would laugh at me. And so I worked in a lab. And so when people asked me, what do you want to do when you finish? I said that I want to be a lab tech because mm -hmm. I thought it was believable. I mean, my parents had a friend, one of their closest friends, their daughter was a lab tech. And so I understood you can major in science as I did. You could work in a lab and then you graduate and then you could become a lab tech. It actually took a couple of years for one of my mentors to keep, to keep on asking me, is this really what you want to do? And one day I said to him, well, I think I, I really want to be a doctor. He then introduced me to a lot of people, including his former mentees, um, who helped me understand that there were many unwritten rules. I mean, I didn't know about taking test prep programs. I didn't know about doing certain volunteer experiences. I just didn't know about these things that I think a lot of people who don't come up in um, in in privileged backgrounds um, may not know about, right? And so um, I remember also there was one instance where my um, my I, I went to the, the career counselor, and the career counselor, I'm sure they were advising many many students. They looked at my grades and whatever scores and said. There are people, we have plenty of people every year who have your grades and your exact background. But not and at your age, my goodness. No, but she said to me, they apply to 40 medical schools and they don't get into any of them. And so my mentor, Dr. Raymond Garcia, I told him the story and he said, in that case, you have to apply to 41 medical schools, which is what I did. I kid you <laughs> not. That's unbelievable. I mean, what was that experience like being a 13-year-old in on a college campus? And what, what college did you go to first? I went to California State in Los Angeles. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I will tell you that I did not have a great experience for my because of me. I mean, it was not because of the 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 college at all. And I, I was very fortunate again to meet amazing mentors, but I didn't want people to know my age. At that time, I also um, I, I was also kind of ashamed of my parents and my background. And I at that time too, I had not yet acknowledged my severe speech impediment that I grew up with that I talk a lot about in Lifelines as well. And for all those reasons, I didn't want people to ever get close to me. And so I didn't make friends. In fact, it wasn't until graduate school that I really made friends for the first time. And so, I mean, I studied really hard. I worked in the lab. I got into medical school. That's what I went there for. But I definitely did not have what anyone might consider to be a, a good college experience. Wow. But and you still you persevered and you persevered beyond believe. I mean, um, so now you're 
How old were you when you graduated from, from medical school? You were, must have been in your low 20s, right? I took a number of years off in medical school to do other things. Um, I uh, I took one year off to be the president of the American Medical Student Association to do health policy and lobbying work in DC. Um, then I also worked at the World Health Organization in Geneva. And then I was a Rhodes Scholar and after medical school, went to England for, for two years to study health policy. And so- Just an underachiever. <laughs> no, no, no. But all, all this is to say that I think I was 24 when I finished medical school. Wow. I mean, well, then that would have been, you know, close to the regular age of, of others who are finishing school. And then what was your first position? Uh, where did you go intern at? I was a resident. I did my internship in in, uh, in residency in emergency medicine at Brigham and Women's and Mass General Hospital in Boston. And then I moved to D.C. to be at George Washington University. And this I also talk a lot about in the book about why I did. And it was specifically because um, at that time, so during my medical training was also when my mother was misdiagnosed and then finally diagnosed with what turned out to be metastatic breast cancer. Oh, no. So I was her caregiver for eight years while she was undergoing various forms of, she went through many rounds of chemotherapy and radiation, just surgery. And I, I saw actually how much in that experience, this disconnect that exists. I mean, I was going through my medical training, so I knew that doctors and nurses are trying to do the best they can in a broken system. And, pa and patients and family members are really frustrated by the care that they're getting but it's not because of someone's fault necessarily, just that there's something wrong with the system. And so I, I went to um, to to G, GW in order to do patient advocacy work and wrote my, my first book, When Doctors Don't Listen, specifically about how can we bridge that disconnect between what patients need and what the healthcare system is doing. And, you know, in some ways, that's really where the foundation was built on what you're doing for the world and the nation right now is trying to fix this disconnect and i think there's a there's a pretty severe disconnect going on right now when it comes to covid mm. and our health care system that we call here in america let's talk a little bit about that i mean i think you know one of the things i shared with you before we started film taping i want to make sure i share it again is um i am one of those breakthrough i i did a video about it put it up made sure people understand and you know because a lot of people uh, about a week or two ago, didn't act like they knew too many people who had a breakthrough infection of COVID, but I'm one of those breakthrough infected people. Um, let me tell you a little story, because this is really, this will come back to this disconnect that's going on, I think, in our society. Mm. Two weeks ago, um, two, uh, about two and a half weeks ago, I literally um, got up, it was a Tuesday morning, I got up, I felt great. Um, I knew that day I, I felt, you know, I'm, I'm going to get ready to take a trip. I, I and my wife are going to go and visit uh, her mother. And so before I go get on this plane, I said, you know, I just want to make sure that all my antibodies are here. And I recognize the fact that I am a immune suppressed person. I take immune suppressed uh, medication for MS and I've been hearing so much on you know, one side and the other side that people who take autoimmune medications have could have not had the same effect from the vaccine, even though I believe that I, you know, I was completely protected and had been, I was one of the early uh, vaccinators. I got my full vaccine uh, vaccination, two of them, one in January, one in the first week of February, and I felt like I've been, you know, 
protected with a shield of armor around me. And I and my wife practice every single mitigation technique that you could possibly think of. We didn't even leave our apartment except for maybe to walk our puppy and to, you know, very few occasions go to the grocery store. But if we did so, we went with mask on, fully masked everywhere I went. I went to the gym. I kept on a mask while I was on a treadmill and on the elliptical. You know, I worked out, put on plastic gloves and and wiped down everything I touched for a year and a half. We didn't go to a restaurant to eat until after that year and a half. So that Tuesday, I'm thinking to myself, I just want to check my antibodies because I'm hearing this 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 disconnect. Some doctors are saying that people with autoimmune illnesses have a lower response to the vaccine. Others are saying, no, it's the same. I couldn't figure out what the truth was, so I wanted to know. I called my doctor. He said, okay, I'll write your script. Go get a test. That was on Tuesday. So I was going to go and get the antibody test. Now, Dr. Wen, let me tell you what was crazy about this. I won't name the name of the lab, but I went to a nationally certified lab, and they had a big sign on the front door that said, no mask, no entry. And then there was, you know, the big, you know, separation disc on the floor. And when I looked out at the floor, there was even a sign on the floor that said, no mask, no entry. I had on my mask. I went into the lab, went to check in at the desk. The woman was wearing a mask. I looked around the room. There were maybe six or seven people in this waiting room that was about mm, 40 by 40. It was a big room. So people were separated by at least six feet sitting in chairs. Almost every one of them had on a mask except for one woman who was helping another lady and she had her mask down under her nose. And I think I gave her so many dirty looks in the first 20 seconds that I walked in that she pulled that mask up over her nose. Went to the counter. I'm talking to the, to the woman who was the attendant, checking in. And the check-in counter is right by the door entrance. The door opens and this guy walks in behind me who wasn't wearing a mask. Mm. And I remember, look, I, I, I looked at him because it, it angered me because he literally encroached upon my personal space. This wasn't, we weren't talking about separation from COVID. He wasn't separating at all. This guy almost bumped, bumped against me. He was so close. And I looked him in the face and recognized, and I don't mean to cast aspersions on people, but you know, you just look at somebody, he looked like he was sick. Mm. He was mouth breathing and breathing kind of heavily. Mm. <sighs> And he stand up beside me. So I moved. I had my mask on. Pull tight my mask up a little bit. I moved over. And I looked at him. I went ahead and finished my little check-in with the woman. Now we're about mm, arms distance. But he wasn't six feet away. He was arms distance away. Got my business done real quick with the lady at the check-in counter. I walked away from him, 12 feet away from him, sat down. And I, I was so angry that this person had the audacity to come in and get that close to me that I texted my wife. Right there. I said, you know, you won't believe this, but this dude just walked in here. Signs everywhere says put on a mask and he doesn't have a mask. Finally, the attendant said, sir, you need a mask. He walked out, came back in, took a mask out of his pocket, put it on his face. I went back to the back area, did my test for antibodies. I came out, went home. This is Tuesday night. I will tell you, and this is this test I took at my, my appointment was at 2.45. I didn't get in until 3.30. I got home at 4.30. By 5.30, I started sneezing. I sneezed once. I thought that was really weird because I tell you, I don't sneeze. I don't remember the last time I sneezed, but I sneezed. Boom. Then I sneeze again. And then again, I thought, that fool, that guy just gave me a cold. 
sneezed again. That night, I literally put my mask on in my apartment with my wife because I said, you know, I think this guy just gave me a cold. I'm not sure, but I think I, I got a cold. I, I got it wrong when I explained it to you beforehand because that was Tuesday. Wednesday morning, I woke up with a blistering headache. Hmm. And it was it was a headache that that it, it was like none. And I don't get headaches. I don't take I, I barely ever take any medication whatsoever other than my MS medication. And I do have some now I'm on a, a, a regimen of some other medicine for some minor things, a little, little my blood pressure is slightly high and things like that. But so I take slight medication for that. But that day I said, you know, I'm going to take me some Tylenol because my head really hurts. I haven't had a headache in a long time. That was, it was all day Wednesday, Thursday, get up. I started sneezing Thursday morning. I didn't sneeze at all on, on Wednesday, which was weird because I sneezed Wednesday, Tuesday night, didn't sneeze at all on Wednesday. Thursday, I wake up sneezing. I sneezed mm, 15 times during the day. We were scheduled to fly out that night at 9.30. We had a late flight going to Tennessee. And I had dinner, ate dinner, ate dinner early. I'm one of those uh, people who uh, you know intermittently fast, so I ate dinner really early. And when I finished eating dinner, I looked at my wife and I said, baby, I really don't feel good. There's something going on here. I think I got a cold. She said, maybe you ought to get a test. I was able to get my doctor on the phone. He said, yeah, you should go get tested. But yeah, I doubt if you have COVID, you probably caught a cold. Went to a really good laboratory here in Miami. And I um, took the test. And I not only did I do an eight-hour PCR test, but the Administrator said, you know what? I want to give you some peace of mind. So go ahead and take another. You could take the, the rapid response test. I'm not sure if you have it. I don't think you do. It doesn't sound like you have no congestion. He had done this one. I didn't have any congestion. So I went ahead and took the two-hour test also. By the time I got back home, they had sent me a note. I tested positive for COVID. Mm-hmm. And I, I was I was so angry because I had done everything I could possibly do to keep myself from being in that position. And my number one, the, I, was, I was the angriest because I didn't want to come home and give this to my wife, period. So I walked back in the apartment, put on my mask at home together. We kind of try to stay, you know, at least, you know, double arms length apart. Um. We sleep in the same bed, but we put like a big blanket and petition in between the two of us when I slept that first night. And fortunately and blessedly, you know, she got tested, you know, um, five days later and hers came back negative. Great. Um, so I didn't pass on her. And mm-hmm. I should say that it was that Thursday night, Friday morning, I took my first extra strength Tylenol and headache went away immediately. I mean, just took two, I'm telling you, 20 minutes later, headache gone. Mm-hmm. And then I went, hmm, maybe I should try some other over-the-counter stuff. I called my doctor, asked me if it was over-the-counter okay. He said yes. So I got some over ca- over-the-counter decongestant because that sneeze had a little bit of congestion with it. But, but at, at, when I say a little bit, I'm talking infinitesimal. Took a couple of over-the-counter decongestants. Next morning, woke up, no sneezing. I stayed on that regimen of Tylenol and decongestant two of them a day and the Tylenol I was taking every six hours by Sunday, I will tell you, I literally woke up Sunday morning. I said, you know, this is gone. I don't, I don't feel anything. Monday I had a little bit of a recurring headache. 
Tuesday, I felt great again. And all that second week, I felt really great, man. Now, this morning, I kind of had a little bit of a cough, but it went away immediately. And um, I'm feeling pretty good. And, mm-hmm. you know, I called and asked the question first off, and I'll ask you this. So since I went through it this way, I probably had a very, very mild case. I Am I still or could I still be contagious in the sense of spreading this? No. So can I can I give you some reflections based on 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 what you said in your story? Sure. Please, please. Do. Um, one thing that, you know, going back to kind of the philosophy of public health that, that we were starting with, one thing that just struck me so much when you were talking is in public health, there's a saying that public health saved your life today. You just don't know it. Mm-hmm. Meaning that by definition, we have prevented something from happening. So there's no face of prevention. But this is one of the issues with vaccines that, I mean, I, I am so glad that you're here now with us talking and you have recovered and you look very well um, and your symptoms were, as you said, very mild. My first thought goes to what would have happened if you didn't get vaccinated? I mean, we would never know, obviously. And I'm so glad that you got vaccinated. But I think that that's the issue that I think people there, you know, they might have heard all kinds of misinformation about the vaccine. And then they're seeing, oh, well, some people are still getting breakthrough infections. So what's the purpose of the vaccine? Well, it's because if you did not get vaccinated, you might have ended up in the hospital, in the hospital, you might have gotten extremely ill, especially because of your MS and being on immunosuppressants. I mean, who knows what could have happened? And I'm just so glad that you got the vaccine because it prevented that awful outcome from occurring that we'll never know about. Thank Thank you so much for saying that over and over and over again, the way you have the last couple of weeks. Thank you. And I'm so glad that you're well and that um, and that you didn't give COVID to anyone else. And I, I would just say in terms of the in terms of the Delta variant. Now, we don't know that what you got was the Delta variant. However, because that is by far the dominant variant now in the U.S., chances are if anyone gets COVID or gets exposed to COVID, it's the, the Delta variant. It's so contagious. It also appears to make people sicker faster. So it used to be that the average incubation period, meaning the time between exposure to when you get your symptoms, might be five to seven days. Now it's looking more like three days, as in people get sick pretty soon after exposure, which also means um, because we know that people who are ill, um, especially people who are unvaccinated, they have very high viral loads. They're shedding a lot of virus. There was a study done that found that um, a person with the Delta variant is carrying a thousand times the amount of virus than with previous variants. And so when somebody is shedding virus, they're shedding a thousand times more and it's sooner. So they're more contagious than with than, than um, and, and have the ability to potentially infect more people than than, than before. The, I think the positive side, if you will, of this is that the time that you are infectious, that you're able to infect other people, especially as a vaccinated person, is probably pretty short. I mean, the guidance still is that if you start developing symptoms you, and, and then you obviously should get a test, but you should stay in isolation and not be around others for 10 days from the beginning of your symptoms. From what I understand, you are past that 10-day period now. And so, right, um, and so if that's yes. the case, then you do not need to, to, to keep on isolating. Well, you know, I'm going to say I agree with you 100%. I'm not a doctor, but I really, really, really do think that had I not been vaccinated, I would not have had this same outcome. 
I do not believe that. I believe that the vaccination is really what helped to save my life. Yes. I care if people like to hear that from me or not, but that's what I'm telling them. And that's what I believe. And I've heard from so many other MS specialists and doctors across the country who've told me about horror stories that people with my illness have gone through, um, having uh, gotten COVID. So I feel like I'm blessed and, you know, um, again, I'm so fortunate that I didn't give it to my wife. And that's what really, you know, is the one piece of this whole puzzle that I just don't see. I cannot, I can't get a grip for myself. You know, I, I've, I've done shows about, looked into, you know, the, the human condition for millions of different variants, you know, everything from child abuse to, you know, cancer to you name it. And I've never seen we, America, a society of ours, so torn about trying to protect those who we love hmm. as much as we are torn right now. And this is what I think this whole boils down to. It has, uh, you know, I'd love to hear about patriotism, la, 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 who cares? I'm talking about just loving your family. I don't get why people don't understand that, you know, you're not here by yourself. You have a mother, a father, a sister, a brother. You know, most people do. 90% of us have some living member of our lineage around us. Why we would not want to protect them, I don't get it, Dr. Wen. I, I mean, I, I share your frustration. I, I'm looking at the numbers, for example, of where we are in this country of COVID infections. We are now at almost 10 times where we were just a month and a half ago. I mean, we are now we are now at over 100,000 new daily cases, which is the worst that it's been since February. And in February, we didn't have widespread access to vaccines, right? We, we don't have to be here. We don't have to be in this position where we are now endangering our most vulnerable. I mean, you, as a person who is immunocompromised, are vulnerable. I have two little kids. I have a one-year-old and an almost four-year-old. My one-year-old can't even mask. And so it's the um, I, it's there's something about I think our societal values that are being reflected in this moment. I mean, who are we as a society if we are valuing the individual right of some, but over the health and well-being of everyone? I mean, I guess I I don't quite understand. To me, getting the vaccine should be like not driving while intoxicated. As in, you have a right to drink in your home or in a bar or whatever, right? In a private space. But if you're going out behind the wheel of a car and have the ability to potentially harm others or kill others, how is that? I mean, who? Why does? Why do people have a right to endanger individuals like our children or you or whoever, right? But why did? Why is that a right um, that we now have? And what happened to? Love thy neighbor, and exactly as you said, Monta, about protecting your family. I don't know. Yeah, I'm I'm very concerned. I'm concerned, and you know, especially when you look. I looked at some numbers before I came on uh, with you today, and I mean, I saw a number that that blows my mind. We have over 35 million cases of COVID in the United States of America, and the country of India, which has five times our population, has like 31 million. We have more COVID cases in the United States than are in India. In India, excuse me. This is just I, you know, per capita. It just, it, it, I don't understand. I just and, don't get it. 
Yeah, and both are undercounts. I mean, we've done a terrible job of testing in general, which I have to say is one really important part of your story that I just want to make sure that people hear as well, which is that you know your body the best. And if you have unusual symptoms, in your case, you don't normally have headaches, you were saying. I mean, a lot of people have headaches. And so if it's your normal headache, fine. But if you don't have headaches and now you have a headache, there's something not right there. And so, and even if you are vaccinated, we know that breakthrough infections can occur. Now, again, chances are when you have a breakthrough infection and you're vaccinated, you're not going to get severely ill. That's the reason we get vaccinated. But you still want to know because you want to protect the people that you're around, especially if you're around immunocompromised individuals or young kids or other people. You want to know so that you can protect other people. And so getting tested when you have symptoms still remains really important. And I'm, I'm really glad you did that and are talking well, about it. Well, there's another another question I have for you because maybe you can help me understand this now. So I had the vaccine. The vaccine helped me help my body produce antibodies. I get the breakthrough infection, so my body went ahead and produced more antibodies. Correct. So I kind of have like a double. Do I have do I have a double protective sheet of armor now, or could I possibly get this a third another time? Could I get this a second time? So that's a really interesting question. And actually one thing that you had mentioned earlier that I just want to maybe back, backtrack as well, getting the antibody test. I actually would not recommend that people routinely get the antibody test. Okay. If your doctor orders it because you have a specific medical issue and your doctor's monitoring it, that's different. Um, but I, I mean, just in general, some people could have no antibodies, but they, but the vaccines also stimulate your B cells and your T cells. And so, it, so just because you don't have antibodies doesn't mean that the vaccine somehow isn't working. So we normally don't don't advise that. Um, but um, uh, to your question about protection now, what we know is that if you are infected and then recovered from COVID-19 COVID infection, you do have some level of immune protection that's strengthened if you get vaccinated. And so that's why people who have what COVID in the first place, we still recommend that they get vaccinated to give them additional uh, an additional and more consistent level of protection. Now, if you got a breakthrough infection, I mean, one might surmise that you really have a strong response at this point and that your body successfully fought off the infection and that proves that your body has the, the, the strong antibody and, and other immune response. I don't know if it gives you additional protection. And what I would say is that what I would be concerned about at this point is not just Delta. At some point, Delta is going to pass us. I mean, it's it, it went through India, it went through the, the UK. The question is, what might come up after Delta? Now, I, I stay awake at night thinking about this because when we have new variants emerge, we look for three things. Is it more contagious? Is it more deadly? And can it evade the protection of our vaccines? Delta is more in, in, is more contagious. It appears to be more deadly. But so far, so far, it is responsive to the vaccines. What happens if we have another variant arise that's not as responsive? That really keeps me awake at night. You know, I did ask a doctor, you know, we, I won't go to who he is, but I asked a doctor, we could go with that question. I mean, we as a society, as humans, should be worried about the fact that the more this virus exists in the population, the more the greater the chance of its mutation. And could we, in fact, even though we do understand its DNA, its RNA, we understand this virus, it could create a variant that we don't have anything for yet, right? That's exactly right. So 
Will that happen? I don't know. But will we get new variants? Absolutely. Because this virus, every time there is replication of the virus and it goes from person to person, it mutates. And what that means then is the more that we allow it to mutate, the more it's spreading in hot spots around not just the country, but the world, the more mutations that are going to occur. Now, the vast majority of mutations are going to do nothing in particular, but at some point, new mutations could arise. And it's definitely possible that we could have a, a variant arise that we have to develop a new vaccine for. Now, in some ways, that's not the end of the world because we could get booster shots that more that very specifically target that variant. But how long do we want this pandemic to go on for? What are we going to do if everyone needs a booster of a new shot in order to get to get immune protection again? I mean, it, it, and I think the the logistics of that are mind blowing. And I don't think that we I mean we want to prevent that from happening. And I think the most frustrating thing is we can prevent it from happening. At our low point, we were just over eleven thousand new infections a day. Dr. Fauci and others estimated that if we were under 10,000 infections, we actually could have gotten this thing under control. We were so close and it didn't happen, not because of the science or failure of medicine, but because of human behavior. And, you know, maybe to take one quick second to explain to people, I say this a, a lot. I've been talking to some friends and having conversations and somebody says, well, I don't really understand how come this variant is, is this, that or other. And I say to people, what you have to understand is that a virus is a living organism that is trying to survive. I'm not giving it, you know, credit for being able to think, but right. it's trying to survive. Its right. whole goal is to find a host and to live. And then if that host dies, then find another host and live. So that's why these variations take place, correct? That's that's exactly right. I mean, this is what viruses do, right? What viruses they mutate and they it's it's evolution in this sense. They it it is to the virus to the survival of the virus to be able to be even more contagious. It's not to the benefit of the virus to kill everyone that it infects because if that's the case, there are no nobody else there's nobody else left to infect. The ideal virus, in a sense, if your virus is for something to be really contagious so it can spread to a whole lot of people, that is, in fact, what we're seeing now with the Delta variant. And, you know, are you concerned at all? I've recently read information, um, you know, about the fact there were some doctors or some scientists who were looking at some ice cores you know, from the Himalayan area where they were digging up ice cores that these ice cores were close to a million years old. and because they were looking at them, they were looking at them because they recognized that ice around these cores had melted down to that million-year-old mark, and they were finding viruses in there that we've not seen. Man has not seen in recent thousand, two thousand years. Are we concerned about some of this stuff from global, not global warming, but from climate change being released up in the atmosphere and becoming even more contagious than, let's say, COVID? Yeah, so I haven't heard about the ice core issue, but certainly could there be another pandemic in the future? Absolutely. One of the reasons why I wrote Lifelines is to illustrate what's happened to our public health preparedness efforts. When something is invisible, we don't see it. It becomes undervalued, underfunded. There is not investment in this field. And what we've seen, local and state health departments have lost 30% of their staff in the last three years, um, the last 30 years, sorry. And um, and uh, it, prior to the pandemic, we were already in a situation where we were always robbing Peter to pay Paul, as in we always have to cut one priority because a new emergency comes up. 
So where, if you have no staff and people are already wearing multiple hats, what do you do? Well, we really need to bolster our public health infrastructure going forward because we cannot be in this situation again. Well, I tell you, one of the things that people don't understand is the fact that, as you said, over the last 30 years, but over the last five years, we have started to see, you know, a mat, not it's not a mass exodus. It's just the aging out of the medical community. I mean, we take a look, we are, you know, there are estimates that say that, you know, within the next two years, we will be close to a half a million nurses short in America. Why? Because we're not, a lot of the, the recent generations have decided not to go to medical school and not to go become nurses. And as our nursing population ages out and retires, there's no one there to fill in the gaps. And the same thing when it comes to doctors, we have not been educating, you know, the same numbers of doctors that we are going to need for our future. So we're, and then now you put on top of that something like COVID in the last year and a half. And I'm, I'm hearing all this information coming from hospitals all over the country about the fact that doctors and staff are so overworked and so tired. And now they're becoming tired of the fact that there are so many people who are coming in now begging for a vaccine after they've now been diagnosed with COVID and they're laying on their deathbed and waiting, you know, hours away from being, you know, intubated, saying, well, can I get the vaccine now? There, This is going to leave us in a position in the next six to eight months to a year where I think there's going to be a lot of the medical professionals in this country who are just going to say, I'm done. I can't do this anymore. I can't work 27 hours a day. There's no such thing as 27 hours a day. It's only 24. So, I mean, how, how do we even come close to cracking this. Yeah, and I actually think that there's a much bigger problem too. I mean, I certainly agree that our healthcare workers are really burned out and it's been really hard, I mean, to go through waves and waves and surges and surges and know that so much of the suffering that we're seeing is preventable, even more so now with the vaccines. I mean, the vast majority, and I think this is important to emphasize, 99% of the deaths that we're seeing from COVID-19 are from unvaccinated people. The people filling up our hospitals, more than 95% um, in many parts of the country, it's closer to 97, 99% are people who are unvaccinated. And so- I, I, wish, you really just say, I wish you could just say those numbers over and over and over again. I don't know. Do I have to have a baseball bat to hit somebody upside the head? 99% of the people who died don't have the vaccine. Exactly. And there are people, I mean, I, you know, we've seen these news interviews and I've certainly talked to some of these individuals who are really ill now and want and wish more than anything that they had gotten the vaccine. They're pleading for the vaccine now. And of course, the vaccine is not going to help you once, you once you're already diagnosed with COVID. We have to treat you and you have to recover. Then you can get vaccinated. But that is that's so hard to hear from people who said, I wish I got this earlier, or I wish my husband or my child or my, my mom or whoever got, got the vaccine earlier. But I think there's, um, so I definitely agree that for healthcare workers, we need to be attentive to their mental health needs. We really need to be attentive to burnout. Um, it, I think also that we need to look at our public health workforce, people who are on the front lines in local city, county health departments and state health departments, they many of them have been scapegoated. They've been in community meetings where people shout at them, you know, mask mandates or vaccines are have become so politicized. And 
if you are the bearer of that message of the importance of mask wearing, but there are people who think that wearing a mask somehow means controlling them in some way, I mean, that individual is going to get is going to get the the hate and the anger that a lot of people are projecting. And I hope that we will also be applauding the public health workforce who have been on the front lines doing testing, contact tracing, getting vaccinations out, educating on masking. Um, it's really hard for them. And they have they were already stretched beyond stretched prior to the pandemic. And I hope we really are looking to see how can we help this public health workforce going forward. Do you think it's going to take more companies like, let's say Walmart, like, you know, Walmart already done it, Facebook, Disney, Google, and many others are mandating that their employees get vaccinated to even have their job. Do you think it's going to take more work like this from the private sector to finally convince people to let's get a grip and do, I don't care if you like it or not, it's the only way you're going to get a paycheck is if you come to work vaccinated. Do you think we need to have more companies do this? Definitely. I think it made a big difference for the Biden administration to be announcing that the federal workforce, because that is an employer, the federal government is an employer. It made a big difference for the Biden administration to say that they're going to be doing this. I, I think it's wonderful that Disney and Facebook and Google and so many places already have said, we expect that there is going that our workers are vaccinated. I mean, there are two ways of thinking about it. One is from a workplace safety perspective. If you're being told to go into work, but you're immunocompromised or you're told to go into work, but you, you have young kids who are not vaccinated, how do you feel safe if the people around you are not vaccinated? That's not fair to that to those individuals. And then the other is what is the obligation to society? At some point, we do have to say, hey, if you want to be vaccinated, if you want to be unvaccinated, do your thing. But if you want to engage in the public space, if you want to go to bars and restaurants and concerts and whatever other space, I think we should go there as France and other places have and say, you need to show that you're not going to give others a potentially deadly illness. I, you know, I don't understand why it took the federal government so long to, to make the announcement that they were going to require that federal employees be vaccinated. I mean, you know, I, I spent 22 years in the military and they didn't even ask me. It was, you know, stand in line, fool, and get your vaccination. You know, before I got commissioned, I was mandatorily, you know, immunized from, you know, various, uh, before I could be deployed anywhere in the world. So it's not like it's something that's new. And I mean, I, I, I question the fact that they have not gone ahead and said that everyone in the military needs to have a vaccination, period. You know, that right there was set an example of an entire industry. Uh, being vaccinated. And, and for some reason, we've been hesitant to do that when we will vaccinate for so many other things. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Exactly. I, I very much agree with you. <laughs> okay. Well, now, so what do you think? I mean, uh, you know, could something have been done in, let's say, the last administration? One of the things we have to, we all have to give them credit for is, you know, what is the Operation Warp Speed and ensuring that the vaccines were made readily or at least authorized and, and were were researched and came out of labs and were set in a position to then get FDA authorization, not approval, but authorization. But don't you think that the previous administration could have stepped forward, especially the president himself, when he got his vaccination before anybody knew that the vaccine was even available? If he had stepped forward and said, guess what, folks, I got a vaccination. Do you think that would have made a difference? 
Oh, I mean, certainly. I think part of what went wrong in our response, and I spent a lot of time in Lifelines um, di dissecting this and looking back and saying, here's what we could have done differently. One of those issues is the disconnected messaging, that when you have public health officials saying one thing and politicians saying another, it's a really serious problem. I mean, public health depends on public trust. And that public trust is eroded when you have officials who are saying something totally different um, from, um, from, from one another. Um, and I also think that, I mean, a lot of people are wondering, if I got COVID, why do I still need to be vaccinated? President Trump, former President Trump, got COVID. And then he got the vaccine. His wife was vaccinated. I mean, I think that it's important to tell these stories. And um, and I, I do think that the the lack of clear messaging and the um, and really unfortunate occurrence of somehow making public health the enemy, as in public health is not the reason why we had to close things down. Public health is the answer to how we can get the economy reopened. It's the, it's the answer to how we can control COVID and get our schools back. And so I, I hope that we'll see, we'll understand that messaging going forward too. Okay, I mean, can, can you even conceive of why so many people, I mean, when you go and ask the question, you walk by one of these bars. Uh, I, I happen to live in Miami where we now have found out is now again the epicenter because in the last 10 days, we've had like, I think a tenfold increase in the number of hospitalizations down here. Again, back to that point, 99% of those that are hospitalized are not vaccinated. We've had it, but these people down here, there are people walking around who have the audacity to say that, well, the pandemic's really over. Uh, how I mean, it's <laughs> not over for all those people who are in the hospital and are dying now. I mean, it's just not true that it's over. I, I think we're, the trajectory is going in all the wrong directions right now. Um, Monta, I do want to flag for you. I have to leave in two minutes. Okay. And sure I just no. wanted to make sure you knew. Okay, for sure. No, I want to, I, but then I want to tell you, thank you so much for being a part of today's show and getting out the information and making sure people understand that, you know, we could bring this at least to, could get this under control if yes. each individual did their own civic responsibility, correct? That's exactly right. And I think this is the difference between what we're seeing now with COVID and a weather event. I mean, if you can predict a hurricane is coming, you can take shelter, but there's not that much you can do to prevent the hurricane from actually striking or or making landfall, whatever the, the right term is. But there is something that we can do right now to prevent more people from getting sick from being hospitalized, from dying. And that's this safe and very effective vaccine. So I, I really hope that we'll all see our part. And I think many people who are watching and listening are vaccinated already. So my message to all of you is there is someone out there for whom you are the most trusted messenger. Maybe it's a cousin, maybe it's a neighbor, maybe it's a colleague whom you know is not yet vaccinated. Maybe they have some questions, maybe they have some misconceptions. I hope that we'll all approach those individuals with empathy, talk to them, and I think we can all make a difference in changing hearts and minds too. Dr. Wen, thank you so much for being a part of Free Thinking with Montel today. I know your message is gonna reverberate and, and hopefully move some people in the right direction of doing the right thing. I wish you well, I hope you stay safe, and please, anytime you ever wanna come back, We'd love to have you have a home here at Free Thinker with Montel. Thank you so much. Great to join you. And thank you again for all your work and patient and health advocacy. Yes, ma'am. Thank you so much. You have a great day. Thanks for joining me on Free Thinking with Montel. Please make sure you're subscribed and hit the bell to be notified when new episodes post each week. We'd love to hear feedback, so please send us your comments. <laughs>
Thank you.